Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing A Scanner Darkly. A Scanner Darkly was written by Philip K. Dick and was published in 1977. And the 2006 adaptation, directed by Richard Linklater, came out in 2006. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the episode. Um, this is actually the second Philip K. Dick episode that we've done. Um, much earlier in Cover to Credits' career, we did Blade Runner. So if you haven't listened to that episode, just scroll through our feed a little bit and find that one, because um, that was also a really fun one to do. Yeah, that one was super interesting, just with the history of that movie mm-hmm. and the book and how it tied in. Uh, but this uh, episode is a patron request. Yes, our patron Laura asked us to do this episode, and she also sent us our thoughts, her thoughts on uh, the book and movie, so we'll definitely read that at the end. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, a really great suggestion to kind of one of those fringe movie adaptations that I know a lot of people still like and is kind of talked about, you know, among movie mm-hmm. fans, but a lot of people don't quite know about, so... Yeah, and this is definitely one of um, Philip K. Dick's more um, well-known books, novels. Um, You know, he wrote a lot of sci-fi, a lot of short stories, a lot of, you know, novels, etc. And this is one of his more famous ones, along with Blade Runner. Um, And, in fact, reading up about this book, and um, according to, like, the afterword that the author put into this book, this is sort of like a semi-autobiographical story. Yeah, so in um, 1970, apparently he's had a history of um, uh, drug abuse. Yeah. But in 1970, his fourth wife left him. Yeah. And he kind of spiraled um, into hardcore drug abuse. Yeah. Let a lot of people just, like, hang out at his house Mm -hmm. and kind of, you know, left that open. And for he kind of lived that way for two years. Yeah, and he was addicted to um, methamphetamines mm-hmm. or amphetamines. I don't know. And um, eventually ended up going through some type of rehab and getting help for it. And then decided to write this book. And it took him a while to kind of figure out how he wanted to write it and also edit it and things like that. Um, because, you know, this book came out in 1977. So, yeah, like kind of reflecting back on this time in his life and the people that he met and the lifestyle that he was living And also going through rehab and what that experience was like, too. Yeah, I actually read something interesting uh, just before, you know, we sat down, which is that uh, he and I don't know if this is the only rehab he uh, participated in, Mm -hmm. but he went to one facility called Excalay. Okay. Excalay. And apparently he described it as very cult-like. Which really ties into this story with... um, What's, the, what's it New called? New Path? New Path. Yeah. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. you know, watching this in the movie, the New Path stuff, I was like, this is kind of weird. So seeing maybe how that was pulled from, like, his own personal experiences, yeah. I thought is kind of interesting. I can see that. And then I also read that he kind of struggled writing this book because he was never able to really break into more traditional fiction writing. Mm-hmm. Um, he had tried in the past and it didn't work out for him, so he stuck to sci-fi. 
Um, so he actually wanted this book to be more realistic. Yeah. But um, knew that he wouldn't be able to get it sold. So he was trying to like add the sci-fi elements in. Interesting. Which I think you and I both noticed that it wasn't, it didn't really feel like a sci-fi story or even like a dystopian future story. It kind of felt more grounded in like that time. Um, And I think that's because it really was, and he didn't really intend it to be futuristic at all Mm -hmm. and just had to like add that in. I mean, I think that's one of the most interesting things about this book though. It's not like, oh, there's flying cars and androids and like, it is able to be much more focused, I think, on the themes that it wants to focus on Mm -hmm. by not having this like really, heavy over-the-top science fiction future with holograms and shit yeah it doesn't have to do too much world building no it's kind of just like peppered with like little odd qualities to it yeah that just kind of like make it feel a little Mm otherworldly but still very very grounded in uh reality yeah Let's begin with how the book and the movie start, which is with a very specific character. In the book, his name is Jerry, and in the movie, uh, his name is Freck. Yeah, the movie just kind of takes another character and kind of gives him this role um, from the book. But uh, Jerry slash Freck is uh, not having a good time. (laughs) And I, I really like the way the book kind of eases you into this yeah he talks about having uh an infestation of uh aphids, aphids thank you <laughs> aphids and uh like they're all over his house and they're all over him and he keeps having to shower and get rid of them mm-hmm. and just as he keeps describing it you're like this is all in his head isn't it yeah and 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 true enough it is like you realize uh that he is a drug abuser mm-hmm. and that he's dealing with some type of paranoid uh delusions uh, and that, like, just involving these bugs that he can't get rid of, they're in his house. He talks about people bringing them in yes. doors in the uh, in the novel, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of like ruining his life, basically. Yeah, in the movie, we see him showering, trying to get them off, yeah. like spraying insecticide all over himself. You know, it, it's really sad and messed up. And in the book, it takes us a while to kind of figure out what's causing this. Mm -hmm. At first, you're like, oh, is he mentally ill? And then as the book continues, you realize that, oh, it's because of his drug addiction to this new drug uh, called Substance D, Mm -hmm. also called uh, death sometimes. Or slow death. Slow death. Um, And that it's causing this brain damage that he's experiencing these hallucinations and these delusions. Yeah, and I I think this is a a really interesting way to begin the book because in the or in the story in general because in the book jerry's like hardly mentioned after this yeah uh and even in the film freck isn't like the most prominent character but it really introduces like themes of paranoia drug abuse Mm -hmm. mental deterioration due to drug abuse and just kind of like uh, a summation of a lot of these ideas i think yeah and then the next part kind of also gives us an introduction to this world and what's going on we have a group meeting of the what is it the brown bear lodge or the brown something? bear lodge yes <laughs> i don't remember what it is in the book it's some kind of community group and they're they're having an undercover narcotics officer come speak to them about, you know, the police's efforts to curb the use of substance substance D to catch the people who are dealing it, things like that. And so this is sort of like a, a primer and an introduction for us as the reader and the viewer on what's going on in this world, 
what is substance D and like wh- where we are in this um, society. Yeah. And uh, the main character who uh, at this point, his undercover name when mm-hmm. he's working with like his superiors and stuff is Fred. Yeah. Because they can't know his true identity while he's out in the field. Yeah. And I don't really know why like no one can know. Like <laughs> yeah. you think someone should know, but like I no know. one's allowed to know. So he wears this scramble suit, which is a head-to-toe suit that projects this ever-shifting, changing, um, v- like, pieces and fragments of uh, different people. Yeah. So it kind of creates this haze. They call it, like, a blur. Mm-hmm. Like, he looks like a blur of a human. Like, you can see eyes and a mouth and his body parts, but it's they're... It's constantly shifting. Yeah, and it kind of gives this, like, very interesting impression. Mm-hmm. And, um... Maybe here we should talk about the what one of the key things about this movie that a lot of people uh, can identify it by, which is the rotoscoping animation. Yeah, it's so iconic and visually interesting, and especially the scramble suit part. Yeah, I love that. Just getting to see all these different faces and hair types and body types just kind of shifting constantly mm-hmm. on this person. Very, very cool style. I think it's a huge advantage of animation as a medium because the special effects, you know, quote unquote of something are seamless to the day-to-day shots of people, right? Yeah. It's not like a uh, a Marvel movie where even with the highest budget special effects, there's still that, like, shift of, like, okay, now this is a CGI yes. crazy part, and now these are just two people sitting, right? Mm-hmm. It, it completely merges those things. So, like, the scramble suit visual effect, which is so neat, feels just as, like, grounded in the universe as, like, everything else. Yeah, it fits well into the environment. Um. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about the rotoscoping yes. process, Ian, because this was very new and unfamiliar to me. Yeah, so rotoscoping has been around for a long, long, long time with animation, even in the early, like, 1900s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is the process of animating over top of um, footage of an actor. Okay. And this is kind of done to varying degrees. So a lot of early Disney movies actually use it, like wow. Alice in Wonderland or um, I think Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can kind of tell knowing that going back that like a lot of the animated movements feel like they're they're well done, but they feel grounded to like the weight and movement of a real person. And that's because they rotoscoped a lot of those okay. uh, scenes. And so it's existed to varying degrees, but it's not done a lot where it's like very apparent looking at it like this movie a lot of people know like oh that's a rotoscoped movie right Mm -hmm. and so yeah so obviously the technology has advanced a long way since you know the time of disney where now they film so they, they essentially filmed the entire movie uh a lot of it on real locations you know like in yeah. the house, outside of the house, with the actors, everyone in costume, basically, you know, f- acting out the entire film. Then, and they cut the entire movie that way, and mm-hmm. then I think handed it off to the animation team, and they took each cell or each frame of that movie, and with uh, like Wacom tablets on computers, hand animated over it. And it's interesting because they have like samples on walls of like. These are how we animate Keanu Reeves. This is how we animate hair. Yeah. Do this. Don't do that. So in a lot of ways, it is handled the same way you would traditional animation, Mm -hmm. but with the factor of doing it over real people. Do you know if it's 
like harder to do animation this way, like versus doing like an actual animated like if they had just animated this without yeah. the real people, is this the same amount of work? Is this more or less work? That's like, a good question. Um, I, I want to say the way they approached it is more work only because, I mean, they're doing a lot of shading and yeah. giving things like a lot of dimension, which, you know, in more traditional animation, you have a lot less an- like shading mm-hmm. and like definition in that way. I was also wondering if like, I imagine in, you know, regular animation, they're able to, especially with, like, computer animation, they're able to, like, kind of, like, copy and paste a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, reuse a lot of things. Well, something they do in animation a lot is, or traditional animation, is um, the frame rate or the, the amount of frames per second. Yeah. Because a lot of people think of it as being consistent, but it's not. Uh, you might have a, like, fewer drawings per second in one scene and then in another scene that might be more visual or animated you might increase the number of frames yeah so you can kind of choose where you want it to be more dynamic Mm -hmm. um so yeah and i think in this they probably just did every frame yeah no matter what whether they were sitting or not now they probably had little cheats where maybe like they copied a frame to another one and then just tweaked it however it was that's true yeah i'm not sure but like the number of hours i mean i was taking notes uh it took 18 months to, in post-production alone, <laughs> wow. to animate this film when originally they thought it would be only nine months. And um, there was over 350 man hours per minute of film. Oh my God. Uh, that went into animating everything. Wow. So, I mean, it's a huge time commitment and investment for an overall effect that's kind of to create atmosphere. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's certainly not necessary in a way. Like, I think it's iconic for the movie, and I think it was an interesting and smart choice. Yeah. But, uh, you know, other directors probably could have tackled the movie just doing live action and probably saved, like, a lot of money. So I admire the production companies and Linklater for doing all this. Yeah, it's so different, but I do kind of like that this type of weird and bizarre book has kind of like an equally weird and bizarre yeah style to it because like we were saying this book and story is so grounded in reality and yet doing it through this lens of animation and rotoscoping gives it still kind of an unsettling otherworldly feeling yeah almost like a dream like feeling yes yeah uh so yeah i think the scramble suit is one of the best achievements with this animation style uh yeah. and Bob at this uh, meeting or mm-hmm. kind of um, assembly talks. And you can tell he's kind of suddenly maybe having this attack of conscience. Yeah. Because he's kind of equating people who are addicted to drugs to saying, like, would we uh, be as harsh on someone who's poor but needs uh, insulin for for themselves, you know, and uh, but he kind of gets cut short. Yeah, so, you know, his undercover identity is Fred, but we find out soon after that his real name is Bob. Mm -hmm. And we kind of know him as Bob and Fred throughout the whole story. And, like, he, because he's undercover, he lives among and is infiltrating this group of addicts. And so, like, he understands them, he dresses like them, he talks like them, and 
it makes sense that he would be feeling sympathy for them. Yeah. We find out later, too, that Bob has also been taking Substance D. Yes. So he is also a drug addict, but he's also undercover. So he's in a really weird and interesting position here. And um, he's played by Keanu Reeves in the film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It really paints kind of this gray area, especially in the book, because like, they talk about, oh, there's cops that are undercover doing drugs. Then you have drug users who are reporting to the cops, yeah. but they're not cops. And kind of like, is there a difference between those two things? <laughs> and yeah. Um, Let's talk about some of the other characters. We already talked about uh, Freck a little bit um, yeah. in, the, in the movie or, or uh, Jerry in the book. But Bob actually lives with two other guys who are also addicted to substance D Barris and Luckman. Is Barris using substance D? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking maybe he didn't. No, they I, are. I thought he did, but then in the movie, I was like, maybe he doesn't. It wasn't. Oh, no, he does pop it later. I remember. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Barris, who's played by Robert Downey Jr. in this film. Uh, Perfect casting. Yes, a, a fantastic <laughs> casting. Just kind of like... Smart and funny, but also kind of unsettling. The most annoying person you have ever met. <laughs> yeah. And he is so annoying in the book, and I hated him immediately. Like, the, just the type of guy who, like, is going to mansplain to you literally everything in the world and yeah. just go off, and you'll be trapped there. And he's just talking about all this <laughs> scientific stuff that... Honestly, I'm convinced that he doesn't know anything. Yeah, and he's no. just talking out his ass. He thinks he's an expert in everything. There's this whole part early on where he's talking to Freck and explaining <laughs> that, like, what is it, like sunburn spray? Yes. If you spray it in a bag and freeze it, you there's cocaine <laughs> in it, and it will, like, separate from the oils. Yeah. And I love even Freck is like, why would they use cocaine for that? That would be really expensive, wouldn't yeah, it? And, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, like, at another point, he tries to create a silencer for his gun, which <laughs> does not work at all. Yeah, and I, Robert Downey Jr. really captures that, like, manic, uh, really kind of unstoppable energy and also just annoyingness perfectly. <laughs> yes, in, in perfect balance. Yeah. Uh, then there's the character of Luckman, mm -hmm. who in the film is played by Woody Harrelson. Yeah. This movie is a really stacked cast. I know, really good. Uh, and in the book, Luckman seems to be kind of maybe the most grounded of any of them. Yeah. But uh, Harrelson really gives him a lot more like zany energy yeah. in the film, which I, I think works. I know. I think he's like the perfect kind of like spaced out stoner type. Yes. Honestly, like he's just like, whoa, man. Like that's that's his whole personality. <laughs> yeah. And his costumes are great, too. Yeah. He has a kerchief around his neck for like <laughs> half the movie. And uh, yeah. And then, you know, we mentioned Freck, who is kind of the most far gone with substance D and kind of in the book, he's kind of just the most like hapless kind of yeah dumb character among them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In the film, he kind of is like the representation of like what is in store for all of them down the line. Yeah. Like we said, super twitchy, really paranoid is hallucinating the bugs, like just in a bad place. Definitely. Yeah. What kind of the main conflict of this movie and book is introduced at this point mm -hmm. where Fred, who is Bob, mm -hmm. but in his scramble suit at the police station is talking to his superior. Yes, Hank. Hank. And Hank is explaining that the, the group that he's watching, mm -hmm. and Hank knows he's like one of them in the yeah. group. Um, but one he the he says, Bob Arctor, who you must know, uh, we're very suspicious of. Yeah. We were tipped off that he 
uh, is buying quantities of Substance D much larger than he can use, so he must be dealing. Yeah. He has a higher income than what he should be getting with his job at the tire and brake place, which we never see him working (laughs) ever. Uh, (laughs) And so they're suspicious of him that he might be higher up in this chain of Substance D distribution. Yeah. And so they want to monitor him. Yeah. So Fred, who is Bob, (laughs) is being told, hey, make sure you keep an eye on Bob because we think that he is maybe our target here. Yes. And Bob is like, okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is the weird situation, right? Because he's in a scramble suit. So Hank doesn't know what he looks like. Hank is also in a scramble suit. Yes. So Fred slash Bob doesn't know what he looks like. And for some reason, no one can know who Fred slash Bob is. Yeah. Not even his superior. Yeah, I really love how this is uh, kind of showing the incompetence and kind of absurdity of the war on drugs, especially in this like uh, undercover aspect, because I mean, yeah, it is a pretty big shit show in a lot of cases there have been incidents of like one (laughs) undercover cop trying to arrest another undercover cop yeah and it just kind of like playing cowboy and like not really having very clear motives or goals even. yeah or being able to uh like just completely break the law Mm -hmm. i i know this in part with um uh, them trying to bust sex workers, police in real life. Yeah. Like, they can go and, like, pay for sex and then arrest them for, re- oh like, God. after receiving the sex that they paid for. Like, yeah. that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, and so I think this book really kind of highlights that weird absurdity. Mm-hmm. Oh, but um, in order for... So Hank tells, you know, Bob, that in order to keep an eye on Bob... We are going to install a lot of surveillance in the house. So it's going to be all these like hollow scanners, Mm -hmm. fancy futuristic versions of cameras in this house. Yeah, essentially. (laughs) And this leads to more conversation about like, he'll have to maintenance them. Yeah. And he's like, how do I do that without you knowing who I am? Or like, and because he's like, oh, well, you have to be careful because through process of elimination, we could figure out who you are. So yeah. you'll also still have to be... So, like, edit yourself out, but don't edit, edit yourself out too much. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and it just being like, okay. Yeah, what is this? All right. <laughs> yeah, what's the point of all this? <laughs> in the movie, we actually kind of get a reveal that happens much later in the book. Mm-hmm. So they're suspicious of Bob Arctor because they got an anonymous tip-off. Yeah. Uh, and in the film, we find out much sooner that it is Barris. Yeah. Uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s character. Mm-hmm. And I like this a lot because in the book, uh, Bob is already super suspicious of Barris. Yeah. Like, he does think he's probably the guy who tipped them off to mm-hmm. begin with. And there is a lot of, like scenes coming up where he's like suspicious of Barris and like, you know, not trusting him. And I just like solidifying this a little bit more early on. Yeah. That Barris is the one who showed up to the police and he's saying like, oh, uh, I think Bob Arctor is wrapped up in like a terrorist organization. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's weird because you don't know why Barris is really doing this. Like if he's just mad at Bob and is trying to get back at him by getting him arrested. Yeah. Or if, you know, Barris is actually 
you know, doing a lot more illegal shit and is afraid that Bob might be an informant and so is trying to get him arrested also. Yeah, because there's a line early on where uh, he says to Freck, there's a lot you don't know about Bob. Yeah. And it's unclear if he is talking about whatever thing he thinks he's in on or whether he knows he's actually a cop. Yeah. Uh, But it does kind of show that he's paying attention to Bob in in one way or another. Yeah, we have um, also a scene in the movie here with um, uh, Fred slash Bob being tested, you know, because of his work with the undercover drug operation and possibly using the drugs. They're just keeping an eye on him to kind of see where his mental condition is at because of how rapidly people using substance D can deteriorate. Yeah, I think I read something like, Anytime in the movie someone is asked how much substance D they're using, they always answer, it's hard to say. Yeah, or, or like, I don't not know. that much. Yeah, not that much, I think, yeah. is what they, everyone says when they're asked that. Yeah. <laughs> not, I mean, not a lot. Yeah, I'm good. I'm yeah. good. We also get the um, the bike scene. Yes. Which uh, in the movie they never explain. No, they never reveal, and it never comes back into play. No, I don't know why they included it. Where uh, Barris gets a bike that is supposed to be an 18-gear bike, yeah. but they're counting the gears and trying to figure out, because <laughs> it seems like there's only eight, or yeah. wait, there's seven, or, and they don't know how bikes work. <laughs> and in the book, they actually ask some random guy on the street, and he's yeah. like, oh, yeah, no, it's 18-gear, because there's nine in the front and two on the back or whatever, and yeah. when you switch and you multiply, and it's 18. And, <laughs> Oh, okay. And you can just tell they're just like... Totally burnt out. Yes, even Bob is just like unable to follow like how the bike works. And in the book, that's sort of like evidence as to why um, he's being tested because his superiors think that his brain might be deteriorating. So they're like, hey, remember this thing that happened and you weren't able to like cognitively associate how a bike would work. Um, So we're getting you tested. But we have this scene in the movie and then it just never comes back. No, yeah, it just kind of ends at a weird point. It's just them being all like, what's happening? Whoa! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, so there's like a lot of hangout scenes like this. Yeah. And I can totally see why Richard Linklater wanted to direct this movie. Mm -hmm. Because it is kind of this culmination of things he explores in other films which is like hang out kind of drug-induced um chill movies where characters just sit around and talk yeah a lot of times high or on something Mm -hmm. Uh, but then there's also a lot of like philosophical discussions yeah and big ideas and and things like that and (laughs) it's it's an it's in a different kind of ratio in this film than other ones that he's done. Yeah. But I mean, it makes me think of um, Before Sunrise. Yeah. Where that's just two characters hanging around talking. Mm-hmm. And they'll talk about big things that are really important to them, but also like dumb little small things. And yeah. those characters connecting. And it, it's it's similar in this movie, too. Yeah, it is. Except they're just having like the most inane conversations and interactions because they're high. <laughs> yeah. I think one of my favorite ones is the one when they're um, repairing a car together. Yes. Um, because it's sort <laughs> of like more dynamic, right? There's a lot going yeah. on. They're trying to fix the car. They're talking about what could possibly be wrong with it. And then, like, um, Luckman and Barris kind of get into a fight. And they're like, you know, one of them gets a hammer and the other one gets a rock. And they're, like, maybe going to fight each other. Yeah, they're just so dumb. (laughs) Yeah, but they don't. No, yeah, and they're just kind of pathetic. Mm -hmm. And I do think sometimes in these scenes, um, it maybe sticks, like, too close to the... I don't know if it's the dialogue 
or maybe the way it's edited. Yeah. Because, like, I did think a lot of these scenes in the book were funny um, reading them, but they lacked a certain energy mm-hmm. in the film, I thought, where, like, they were kind of funny, but I thought they could have been elevated a bit more. Yeah, I agree. It, it wasn't as, yeah, I, I felt like the timing of it wasn't as, like, comedic as it could have been. Yeah, yeah, and I, editing or music or mm-hmm. maybe the animation kind of affects our perception of the comedy as maybe. well. I, yeah. I don't know what the uh, the missing link is there, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, like, funny, but it wasn't as quite as uh, realized, I think, as it could have been. Yeah. So um, we have this part next where Bob takes his friends out because the cops need to come in and add all the cameras to the house. So he grabs his buddies. They go out for a road trip. They're just hanging out. In the book, we get this whole scene where Bob goes and visits this woman who's a junkie, what the fuck was the point? I have of no this idea what was scene? happening here, Ian. It's like this woman who's fighting with her boyfriend or husband, dealer, pimp, who is probably gonna murder her, and nobody cares. Yeah, he's trying to get her to come outside, and then he slashes her tires, yeah. and like then they tried to call the police on a neighbor's phone, and it's just like this whole domestic <laughs> dispute yeah. of a character that we never see again, and Bob never talks about again, and we're no. like, how do you know her? And it doesn't feel like it just feels like it's illustrating like. I don't know, more drug abusers and their kind of shit life. And yeah. It's like, doesn't add anything. Here's just an episode in like the sad times of the world. Like, <laughs> Yeah, really. <laughs> but they do uh, go, what are they? Oh, they're trying to buy uh, what, a cephaloscope. Is that what it's no called? I have no idea, Ian. It's this device that shows you colors and images when you're high or something. Is that it? I thought it was like a record player. <laughs> well, I think that's what it's like equal to like yeah. the future's record player. <laughs> but Bob's got destroyed or broken and there's this whole like ongoing conspiracy <laughs> on like who broke his record player yeah. and like who's at fault. And so they go to buy a new one and they're driving and suddenly uh, the gas pedal of uh, Bob's car won't come back up. So yeah. it's just flooring it. And they're on the interstate and like almost crash into a car. They have to get over. <laughs> they manage to shut the car off and like, or put it in neutral and mm-hmm. like come to a stop. But it's this really like intense scene. Yeah. And then they open up the hood of the car and like discover that a piece disconnected from another piece in a way that seems like someone had to have like manually removed it. Yeah. Like it couldn't have happened naturally or just kind of by machine error like someone went in and sabotaged the car and so this is sort of adding to that idea about like is barris doing this yeah why would he do that though because like he would be in the car Mm -hmm. would he do that to himself and in the book specifically we get this part where like um bob kind of thinks that maybe barris drugged him yeah because they all take they all drop pills yeah and then Bob has this kind of hallucinatory experience. Yeah. Where he smells dog shit. (laughs) He smells dog shit everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) And he feels like he feels it under the car. But we never get confirmation about whether that's real or not. And somehow in his mind, he's linking it to Barris, who is super sinister. And I agree, is like super shady and annoying. Um, But yeah, this is just like another mystery of the book and the story of like, What's actually happening? Who did this? We don't ever really find out if it was Barris or not. And yeah. sort of this idea that there there isn't really an answer here. 
This story's kind of weird because on one hand, like Bob is undercover and observing kind of what seems to be the most inane, like just group of druggies. I know. I'm like, why is he doing, why is he watching these people? Yeah. But on the other hand, the story is kind of seeped with like conspiracy and like who is is someone after me or, and like, I get that that ties into like the drug abuse that there's a lot of paranoia, but it also seems like, like, I'm not sure how seriously I'm supposed to take any of it, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I know. Like, in some ways, the paranoia is kind of funny and humorous. Mm-hmm. But in other ways, it seems like this real serious dilemma for Bob and, you know, what... What's, or like a mystery. Yeah, you know? what's Barris up to? Like, mm-hmm. what's his motivation? Does he know I'm a cop or doesn't he? Like, is yeah. he a sociopath? And but at the end of the day, you're like, well, they're just kind of a group of burnouts living in a house. And like, yeah. what are the stakes here? Yeah. Um, it's kind of a weird uh, mixture of ingredients. that well, I. And we're never introduced to like a, a deeper plot, right? We're never introduced to like, oh, Barris is actually like this high up dealer who's been trying to set Bob up. Like, we never get that. Yeah. It'd be interesting if Bob knew that someone in the house or in, within his group was this higher up in the drug ring. Yeah. And maybe that's why they think it's Bob, mm-hmm. but he knows it's not him, so he's trying to figure out who it is. And that would at least tie into the larger plot of figuring out where Substance D comes from. Yeah, it just it did just kind of feel a little pointless, and he had no specific agenda. I mean, he's supposed to be finding out if Donna is connected higher up. But, yeah. like, beyond that, there's nothing else going on. Yeah, like, Barris is a, a villain or antagonist does fall a little flat because, like... For no reason? Yeah, like, why is he butting heads with Bob in mm-hmm. the way that he is? And we get just, like, a very off-the-cuff brief explanation for it at the end yeah, that they, I don't think holds up. No, I agree. Um, <laughs> going into more of Barris's like, kind of... Craziness. Craziness. On their way back, after they get their car towed, he tells them all, oh, yeah, if anyone breaks into our house while we're gone, which, uh, at least in the book, I don't think it's established in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Bob knows that the police were going to install the surveillance equipment while they were gone. Yeah. And Barris is like, oh, yeah, I set up a a surveillance camera Mm -hmm. in case anyone comes in. And I put a note on the door saying the door was open. (laughs) And so they get themselves all freaked out on the way back home. Yeah. They... (laughs) Walk in through the front door and they discover that there is a still warm uh, um, joint joint in their ashtray. Yeah. And so now they're like, someone was here. I love this whole scene in the book and in the movie because they just take it like so far. But you can see how this would happen. Right. Yeah. Because at first they're like, well, how would we know if anyone came in? And they're like, well, if the note is gone and then we'll know someone came in. They're like, oh, but what if they like keep the note on or what if they lock it up behind them they're like how would we know yeah someone had been there or not and then they find the joint right and mm-hmm. so they're like someone was definitely here and then they're like well what did they do here 
And they have this idea that, oh, shit, they planted drugs here. Yes. And then they're going to arrest us. And they're like, we have to find where the drugs are. Maybe they're in the walls. Yeah, we have to tear the whole house apart. And they're like, no, no, No. we can't. There's not enough time. Yeah, they're They're like, listen, if they're they're coming right now, probably to arrest us. So we have to pretend like we didn't know because we don't know. Yeah. But then they're like, but what about the actual drugs that we know we have in the house (laughs) that are our actual drugs? What should we do with them? Should we flush them now? And they're like, no, 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 they're probably watching us. Yeah. and then they're like, solution, we'll sell the house. Yes. <laughs> and then they start talking about how they can possibly sell the house. And yeah. I, this is probably the funniest scene in the book and probably the movie, too. And Definitely. just like witnessing the escalation of their paranoia mm-hmm. and their just ridiculous ways to solve the problem. Yeah. And just the escalation of it. And it and the payoff at the end is so great, too, because suddenly Donna just walks in the room and yeah. like scares them. And they freak out and they're like, what the hell are you doing here? And she was like, oh, you left the note on your door that yeah. it's unlocked and I could come in. So I came in. And they're like, did you just smoke a joint? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> so just like, it was just her. Yeah, it was just her. And then they were like, okay, we don't have to sell the house now. But what's funny is someone did come into their house, right? Yes. So like, that's the thing. Like they are paranoid, but it's real because it did happen. Because they did it. Yeah. Them, they did it to themselves. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, I, I These kinds of scenes I thought worked well. And it kind of, I had to almost like shift my idea of what this book was partway through. Yeah. Because a lot of dystopian sci-fi fiction from this time that I've read or we've read for the podcast kind of is very self-serious and all about like how dark and terrible the future is and all this stuff. And so like, I, I kind of went into this book in that headspace. Yeah. And then partway through, I had to be like, Wait, this is actually, like, funny. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of absurdity in this that I, like, was not expecting at all. Yeah. And I kind of had to, like, change my perception of, like, what I was reading. Well, and the tone is a little bit all over the place. It it, it really is. Like, it does start off that way, feeling very serious, and then the funny parts kind of, like, sneak up on you, and then you're like, okay, I guess this is funny, but in a dark way. Um, But then there's so much... Um, philosophizing by Bob, the main character. Like, we're really in Bob's head. And he just is going off constantly about all of these things. Like, oh, what does it mean to be a drug addict? What does it mean to be good or bad or harmful to others? And, like, literally every random topic, thinking about philosophy, thinking about God, thinking about burnouts, thinking about drugs. like Perception of self and time and... Uh, yeah, it, it just escalates in in how grand the ideas are that it's like... It's very tiring. It it really is. And I mean, it certainly pulls you into the headspace yeah. of his character and what I imagine like being on acid and like psychedelic drugs can like do to you. Yeah. But to what end? <laughs> and like, I kind of don't know how... And I mean, it's effective in a way where you're like... Should I take this seriously? Because it is just this drugged out, like, burnout thinking all this stuff. But, like, yeah. is he wrong? But he's undercover. And so there's that, you know, moral question that he's asking himself and identity about who he really is and all that stuff. But, yeah, it. I think it just went too far and it went on too long. And it was kind of tiring to read 
a lot in a row of it. Like I, I it was hard for me to read a lot of this book at once. Yeah, the, I, I found myself kind of like zoning out. Yes, and then I'd be like, wait, where am I? And then I'd spend yeah. like thirty seconds finding my place again. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, it, uh, it, it was hard to um, absorb a lot of that at points. Yeah. Let's take this moment to uh, discuss Donna as a character since she kind of makes an appearance at this moment. Yeah. Uh, She's played by Winona Ryder in the movie. Um, But Donna is Bob's girl. And I say that in quotations (laughs) because his friends always talk about Donna in the way that she's Bob's girl. But we find out that Bob isn't really with her. Like they're kind of dating, but they are not having sex. No. Uh, You know what this reminds me of, actually? What? Um, we just watched Trainspotting 2 for a bonus episode. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, Simon, sick boy, is with uh, Veronica, but yeah. she doesn't really sleep with him. And they're not having sex, <laughs> and it seems like she maybe doesn't like him that much. Yeah. And, yeah, no, it's exactly that situation. Yeah. Like, they seem to hang out and get along well enough, but Donna seems to have, and I don't know if this is some kind of, like, trauma, mm-hmm. but she has an aversion to being touched. Yeah. And does not really want any men specifically or not specifically but including bob Mm -hmm. to touch her yeah which is kind of strange because in the film we see her snuggling up to bob a lot i thought that too and she actually takes his arm and grabs it and puts it around herself to snuggle into him yeah you know she doesn't just like lean over and he puts his arm around her like she takes his arm and puts it around herself yeah uh so i don't really know what if it's like when she is high that she yeah. gets that way it's kind of unclear what her her situation is yeah but bob is like always trying to sleep with her right like that's yeah. his goal he's like what do i have to do i'm still i'm just gonna keep hanging around her keep you know hanging out with her buying drugs from her because that's who kind of supplies him and he's trying to get to the person who is giving donna the drugs to to bust them eventually but he's also like, but I, I like Donna. He's like kind of in love with her, wants to sleep with her, wants to really make her his girl. And this is fine in the movie because, you know, we've got Winona Ryder. The uh-huh. two of them seem great. And then when you read the book and you're reading it for a while and suddenly Donna says something like, oh, I can't buy alcohol because I'm underage. And we're like, what? How <laughs> underage? Yeah. This ties into something in Philip K. Dick's real life where mm-hmm. when he did open up his house for just like random youths to do drugs, do with drugs him. there with him, he developed a very close relationship, a non-sexual one, according to him, yeah. with a teenage girl. Yeah. So Philip K. Dick around this time is about 40 or 42. And he lets a bunch of teenagers move into his house. He specifically says that. All these drug users who are kind of like, they cycle in and out of his house, right? They're all teenagers. Yeah. So that's totally normal, right? Like a 40-year-old man hanging Mm -hmm. out with a bunch of teenagers doing drugs. Okay. Um, In the book, it seems like Bob is around the same age. Like late 30s, maybe 40. And Donna is implied to be a teenager or under 21 in some way. Yeah. And he's trying to sleep with her. And that's his goal. And he's like obsessed with trying to to sleep with her. So this just becomes so gross and creepy in the book, especially because everyone in the book will not stop talking about nipples, Ian. I I am not joking. I wish, <laughs> that, no, I, I, wish yeah. I was exaggerating. It's I, true. I really wish I was exaggerating. Every time a woman is mentioned, like uh, passing a woman in a street, going, you know, encountering a woman in life, being around Donna, 
Whichever character is around them is like, oh, she wasn't wearing a bra and I could see her nipples. Every single time. I remember one woman uh, was wearing a t-shirt with a slogan and it said like the slogan went from nipple to nipple. Nipple to nipple, Ian. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Nipples are just like the axis around which everything revolves. Like everything comes back to the nipple. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's just, oh my God, it's just so fucking tiring. And, And you know, the movie's guilty of this too a little bit where like, there's that whole thing early on with Freck. Yeah. And, well, well, first of all, we get Robert Downey Jr.'s character just like... Fantasizing about the waitress. Yeah, and it's just like a weird topless shot of her. And it's like, okay, and then Freck... What, Barris is trying to tell Freck how he can get with Donna. Yeah. Even though he doesn't want to get with Donna. And he's like, give her cocaine. And that's what leads to the whole cocaine thing. And then that goes nowhere. No. Freck doesn't even have a scene with Donna. No. In this movie. No. So it's like very weird that like that was even like brought up. <laughs> I know. That like, oh, everyone wants to fuck Donna. And like, how are you going to do it? Like, I bet if you give her cocaine, she'll like fuck you. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, I think Donna's character is less. I mean, obviously she's older and she's like less maybe naive and young feeling in, in the, the movie. In the movie. So yeah. she is certainly handled much better. I agree. She's not a teenager. Ian. She's not. It's, it's a key point. It's so easy, Adina, <laughs> to not make her a teenager. <laughs> it truly is. It's a, it's a, it's a literal one line. Yeah. He could have removed one line from this book <laughs> and not made her a teenager. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's just not great. And there's also parts in this that are kind of racist too. Yeah. Not like as bad as we've seen in this podcast but no honestly it seemed very (laughs) mild compared to some things we've read for this podcast but there is one part where he does like a a slave voice oh yeah yes yes he does and i listened to the audiobook of this for a while so i had to hear paul giamatti who narrated this book Do that voice. Oh my god! On the audio, I would have been like, I cannot. (laughs) (laughs) It was thankfully very brief, so by the time it happened, I'm like, wait, what was that? Yeah, (laughs) not good. No. Um. Around this time, Bob begins to actually like be reviewing the surveillance footage. Yeah. Of the house and watching everyone at the house, including himself, Mm -hmm. like on on pre-recorded videos and. One thing I really love, and I think it's like kind of alluded to in the book, but I think the movie captures it better, is that the place that he is reviewing these recordings looks like a flop house. Yeah. Like there's exposed insulation and Mm -hmm. like bulbs from wires and like kind of creating that parallel once again of like the drug user's life to the undercover narcotic agent's life and the blurring of those lines. And all the other, there's other narcotics undercover agents there too in scramble suits reviewing their own footage. So it's just this weird situation. Yeah, but I loved the depiction of that setting, it Mm kind of being real run down and shitty. Yeah. He's watching the footage one day and sees Luckman with Barris. They're just hanging out and all of a sudden... Luckman starts choking on food. Yes. (laughs) And he like collapses and Barris is just watching him. And doesn't do anything. Yes. And after a moment of just watching him, he gets up and he like calls for an ambulance. But he's like kind of meandering and taking his time. And he's like. What's so weird is because like Bob is watching this. Right. And he's like. Should I call? But if I call, I could reveal to them that there are cameras. Yeah. Um, cause how else would, you know, so it's sort of like an ethical dilemma for him. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. And, uh, Barris in the book waits three minutes 
to call yeah. for an ambulance. Meanwhile, Luckman is passed out on the ground because he can't breathe. Yes. And Barris, when he calls, is like, yes, I think that uh, my friend is having a possible cardiac uh, incident and um, I yes. guess he would probably send uh, your recitation squad yeah. or I oh, don't know the address. Um, let me check. And he like goes to the front door and <laughs> yeah. looks in. like he's just like, oh my god, taking his time. And thankfully, Luckman like manages to like dislodge whatever it was himself. Yeah, and he suddenly like coughs it up. Yeah, and comes to, <laughs> and he and Barris kind of have this like altercation where he's like what the fuck were you doing while i was choking to death and he's like oh i, I was calling yeah you saw me calling i have the phone here and <laughs> yeah um, but this is clearly it's very just, sinister yeah just showing more of that like barris is like maybe a sociopath or something yeah very upsetting yes uh let's catch up with freck though because uh freck decides that now is the time to kill himself Okay, <laughs> this is such a dark part. Yeah. But I genuinely feel like this is the funniest part of the whole story. <laughs> like, I think this is it. it, it yeah. So, yeah, Freck is just like, now seems like a good time to kill myself. Like, yeah. nothing really happened. No. And he's just like, now's the time. The vibes are off. The vibes are off. <laughs> so he <laughs> talks about um, setting up, like, a fake crime scene, essentially. Yeah. To... Trick people when they discover his body and his apartment to trick them into thinking that he lived a more meaningful life than he did. Yeah. So he gets like a copy of Ayn Rand's Fountainhead. Oh my God. That he is like holding or he plans on holding when he dies. Yeah. And like a half written letter to Exxon basically telling them to go fuck themselves. And like he's planting like all this fake evidence. So like that's so absurd and like very yeah. da- darkly funny. He gets like a nice wine to swallow all the pills down yes. with, you know? And he, you know, gets his wine. He takes all the pills and like lays down and gets ready and then instead of suffocating which is what the overdose is supposed to do uh he realizes he was given the wrong pills he got like burnt by his drug dealer and instead he starts tripping balls yeah because he took like all of them (laughs) and he he imagines this like alien creature standing at the foot of his bed with a scroll that is all of his sins it's like the sins of Charles Freck. Yeah. And he's going to read them one by one for, for eternity. For eternity for the rest of his life. Okay, I just have to like read part of this because <laughs> yes. it's really so funny. So the next thing he knew, a creature from between dimensions was standing beside his bed, looking down at him disapprovingly. The creature had many eyes all over it, ultra modern, expensive looking clothing, and rose up eight feet t- eight feet high. Also it carried an enormous scroll. You're going to read me my sins, Charles Freck said. The creature nodded and unsealed the scroll. Freck said, lying helpless on his bed, and it's going to take a 100,000 hours. Fixing its many compound eyes at him, the creature from between dimensions said, we are no longer in the mundane universe. Lower plane categories of material existence such as space and time no longer apply to you. You have been elevated to this transcendent realm. Your sins will be read to you ceaselessly in shifts throughout eternity. (laughs) The list will never end. Know your dealer, Charles Freck thought, and wished he could take back the last hour of his life. A thousand years later, he was still lying there on his bed with the Ayn Rand book and the letter to Exxon on his chest, listening to them read his sins to him. They had gotten up to the first grade when he was six years old. Ten thousand years later, they had reached the sixth grade the year he had discovered masturbation. He <laughs> shut his eyes, but he could still see the multi-eyed, eight-foot-high beings with its endless scroll reading on and on. And next, it was saying, 
Charles Freck thought, at least I got a good wine. (laughs) 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 The year he discovered masturbation. (laughs) It's just, it's so absurd and very funny and just like, Freck's character has already been well depicted as kind of just being kind of pathetic yeah. and kind of just like <laughs> meandering through life. And the fact that he like botches his own suicide <laughs> and ends up in this like hell psych- dimension, hell dimension of being read his sins for like what <laughs> seems like all of eternity is just like, I thought this was like fantastic. I thought it was so funny. I wish more of the book was like this. I do too. <laughs> like, I really wish it like, there, I, and I feel like there were so many other opportunities in the book to really lean into this concept of the absurd, like Mm -hmm. the idea of, you know, I was thinking reading the book, I'm like, I wonder if anyone else in the house is also an undercover narcotics agent. Yeah. And I thought, what if they were all undercover narcotics (laughs) agents? Like how funny would that be? And like, I know really just driving home and like, I I get the book isn't satire to that degree. Yeah. But I think the best parts of the book are addressing the absurdity of like the by war. By being absurd. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, of, of the war on drugs and all this other stuff. And um, yeah, I just, I personally would have, I think, enjoyed it more and gotten more from it if it leaned into that further. I totally agree. Uh, there's a scene here with uh, Donna and Bob where Bob kind of thinks he's making some progress with Donna. <laughs> like she's like, hey, let's hang out together. Maybe we'll go to the movies, the drive-in. We'll watch all of the 18 Planet of the Apes movies that they've come out with. <laughs> Is that a joke? Or they're not that, I guess no, there weren't there that, aren't many. that many. No, <laughs> I didn't even process that joke. That's really funny. I didn't even, that like went right over my head. Um, but they're going to get, you know, they're going to take some substance D. They're going to drink some. Uh, alcohol too. They're going to hang out. So they go to her place. They're hanging out. And he is kind of like, hey, can I put my arms around you? Like, it seems really into her. And she's like, no, get the fuck away from me. <laughs> In the book, she's like, you're ugly. <laughs> like, just oh my God. the harshest thing. Yeah. And then she's like, hey, remember when I called you ugly? I was kidding. I'm sorry. I'm, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. <laughs> and... Bob throws a hissy fit and is really pissed off. And and I say hissy fit because, like, he it really feels like, especially in the book, he's only hanging out with her because he wants to fuck her. Yeah, and she's communicated to him pretty clearly that she doesn't want she's to fuck him. She's not interested in that. Yeah, and he's upset now that she's continuing to say that she doesn't want to fuck him. <laughs> yeah. Um, But he ends up deciding to find, like, a junkie woman that he can have sex with if he gives her drugs. Mm-hmm. So basically hiring a prostitute for himself because it didn't really work out with Donna. And he brings this woman, her name is Connie, home, and they have sex. Um, and then a really weird thing happens to him in the night when he wakes up and he looks over at Connie and he sees Donna instead. Yeah, and he gets the light turned on in his bedroom and it's just, it's Connie again. Yeah. So it just seems like, oh, he was half asleep or something. Mm-hmm. But then later on, he's reviewing the footage in his scramble suit and discovers that her face did change. Yeah. Or is this just his hallucination carrying over yes. into his other life and mm-hmm. he's still seeing that? It's it's very unclear and I don't, I mean, I think it's like meant to be, but. Yeah. Well, and at this point in the book, we have a very clear um, indication that 
um, Bob's mind is deteriorating very rapidly. And in fact, a thing that we've been warned about when he was getting tested, um, the fact that substance D can erode the connection between the left and the right side side of your brain has probably happened because there's a, a moment where he feels his mind actually splitting in two. Yeah. And he stops when he's Fred, you know, in the scramble suit watching the footage. He stops understanding that Bob is himself. Yeah. And I found this so interesting because there's been so many movies and stories of someone with split personality, right? Yeah. Except it's always a reveal later, mm-hmm. right? It's always a reveal that like, oh my God. This whole time. I've also been this person or this person doesn't exist and they're me. Um, but I've never read a book where you watch that the happens. slow progression of someone's mind splitting in two like mm-hmm. that. And there's just subtle hints like in the book he begins to refer to Bob as another person. Yeah. And you realize he's watching him and not realizing it's him. Yeah, I don't know if it's as clear to you in the movie that this is what's happening. I don't think so, but I think that's okay because you get that reveal later where he's told that he's Bob. Yeah. And he goes, I'm Bob. Yeah. And I think... <laughs> wait, 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 wait. <laughs> like, I think that's kind of a payoff in an yeah. interesting way to just, like, realize he's that far gone. Yeah. And it kind of sneaks up on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is a kind of funny part. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, he, oh, well, I wanted to say, too, that in the book, also... He starts, there's random parts of German. Yes. In the writing. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, because I was listening to this on audiobook, that was one of the creepiest things in a book I've ever experienced. Because, uh, like, when you're reading it, yeah. like I was also later. You just see this text. You see it coming. Yeah. But in the book, when I'm reading it, like, Paul Giamatti's. When you're listening. Or, I'm sorry, when I'm listening, Paul Giamatti's just, like, narrating the story and then suddenly he's like, oof, oof, oof. like it just starts like <laughs> doing this like German voice like that you can't like it's creepy. It's so creepy. Yeah. I, and I was like, why German? And then I was looking into it to see like what this was all about. Yeah. So the, this is actually from um, a poem or like a play. OK. Uh, called Faust by uh, Goeth. I'm probably butchering that. I'm so sorry to anyone who's German. <laughs> um, but it's a pretty like it's like a mini- medieval play or German okay. um, poem. Um, about this guy who possibly like sells his soul to the devil mm, um, and is like kind of about temptation and choices on how to like live your life and good and evil and that type of thing. I couldn't really like specifically piece together a reason why this was used in the book. Um, yeah. Maybe just the connection of, you know, the typical story of a man being kind of tempted into, yeah. you know, into sin or into drugs, you know, and like trying to determine what will happen to his soul, you know? Yeah. And I mean, the the gray area of like someone who does abuse drugs, like, yeah. you know, uh, you can... Some people will say, like, oh, it's a choice and, like, you chose to do this and it's Mm -hmm. just, like, doing a bad thing. But, like, a lot of research is, like, "Uh, no, addiction is, like, something that's uh, hereditary or we don't know a lot about. And, like, a lot of people really don't have a good tolerance for it or a way of, like, combating it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think maybe that's kind of, like... Part of the point is to just be like, this isn't just a straightforward morality tale yeah. about doing something that's good or bad. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm, I'm really glad you remembered to look up the journal because I was, <laughs> I remember reading, I'm like, I need to know what this is about or yeah. what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> At this point in the story, because he is clearly having like a 
mental psychotic breakdown, psychotic breakdown <laughs> splitting of the mind. Um, luckily, uh, the people or the agents that he works for are like, we should like test him and yeah. see how he's holding up. <laughs> uh, so at this point in the book, we get a lot of discussion on this testing. Yeah. Uh, it goes pretty in depth with it. And it is interesting because there are clearly like some real world philosophical and scientific examples brought into this. Yeah. Like I know one thing they refer to that's real is um, this idea of if you gave a blind person an object to feel and hold and then later if their sight was restored like the next day and they saw that object would they be able to identify it? Yeah. And that's like an kind of an ancient um, philosophical question and they've actually been able to kind of test that recently mm-hmm. when they discovered like some eye conditions that could be reversed in children. Yeah. And they did that testing on them and were like no they can't actually. Yeah. yeah. Well and also the idea and you know they used to do this to people who had ep- epilepsy or mm-hmm. um psychiatric problems um they would you know do a surgery where they would split your brain yeah they would uh cut the corpus callosum yeah and um this did cut back on the epilepsy (laughs) it worked it really did but it made people really weird like it fucked up their personality yeah i remember i remember my mom told me about this she used to be a nurse Mm -hmm. and she told me that like they would someone who had that procedure might start laughing like really hard you know all of a sudden and if you asked what are they laughing at they'd be like i don't know yeah like i have i can't i couldn't tell you what's funny right now Mm -hmm. like there's just this kind of disconnect in the operation of the brain and like the transference of info and yeah um so yeah like it really is drawing on a lot of interesting medical science philosophical ideas here yeah there's just a lot of it in the book it is yeah it kind of goes on a long time i like how in the movie um he sees the doctors as different doctors i loved that because they were like your perception is going to be changing and this ties into the whole donna connie thing which i don't think the book ever explained why that happened but they were saying you're going to see things that aren't there. You're going to have trouble identifying people. That that makes so much more sense now that you yeah, mentioned that. Yeah. Because I really loved that because I remember thinking in the movie, I realized, I'm like, why is it two different people now giving him the test? Yeah. And the moment I thought that, it changed back to the the original two people. Yeah, and he realizes he's been, like, seeing them differently. So we can clearly visually see how his perception is completely warped at this point. Yeah, yeah. This is where we get, like, the a scanner darkly, uh, that this idea of, like, the scanners or the, the cameras perceiving people and him not being able to perceive himself and yes. this idea of, like, the morality and, and his identity being murky and dark. And is there such a thing as, like, a purely objective view of someone? Yeah. Can it actually look into yourself and your soul and, like, what does it see? And Yeah. Um, Yes. I, I liked this part. I did too. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of really beginning to tie up a lot of themes mm-hmm. within the plot of the story and like what's actually going on. Yeah. There's another part where he is in the cafeteria and he thinks about how in a scramble suit he could hit a woman and she wouldn't know <laughs> who it is. <laughs> this is in the book. You know when you just have that thought about like, I could just hit that I woman. I could just hit that woman. <laughs> Well, he has a similar thought, too, when Donna rejects him. Yeah. He imagines shooting her in the face. I know. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, if it's not nipples, it's... Uh, violence, violence against, against women. women. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, at this point in the story, we get kind of a huge colliding of 
plot points. Yeah. So Barris returns mm-hmm. with audio evidence of um, Bob and Donna talking over the phone about some kind of conspiracy to dump drugs into like the water supply. Yeah, to buy guns, like yeah. all this crazy stuff. And I, I like this too, though, because it does make you question. You're like, whoa, have they been? Yeah, because he's so like completely out of it now. You're like, is this part of his personality? Is there something else going on? And this is the reveal in the book that Barris is the one that's been like calling in these tips, you know? We yes. Didn't, we didn't have that yet in the book. And in, in the movie, we already know that Barris has kind of been this character trying to sabotage him from the beginning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Hank is like, oh, this is all very important. Thank you. Yeah. Um, listen, just as a technicality, we're going to place you under arrest for false evidence. Yeah. But it's just to keep you on hand and nearby. So we like, can go through all the stuff that you brought us. Yeah. yeah. And in the book, he's like, cool, 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 yeah. cool. And they like take him away in handcuffs. Yeah. Uh, but you can tell in the movie, he's like, uh, I don't know about that. And they lead him away. And then Hank is like, yeah, he completely forged all that audio evidence. Like, yeah. None of it's real. Well, and here is where they say, yeah, we were trying to get Barris the whole time. Because we knew that he was, like, the bad guy, and we had you, like, looking up on Bob just kind of as a misdirection because we didn't want you to be, like, influenced by our suspicions, and that's why we put all the surveillance in there. So, you know, Bob isn't the guy. In fact, I know that you're Bob, and uh, we've been after Barris the whole time, but they don't ever explain why they were after Barris. No. They, they give some vague explanation about, like, oh, he's involved with some shady dealings and like gun running and yeah. i'm like when what? has there ever been any evidence of this throughout the entire no book? yeah it's just kind of thrown in there yeah it feels really like just tacked on as an explanation to like i don't know for the purpose of making barris the like the true antagonist or yeah but it really just comes out of left field and is really not given any kind of weight to it i think almost think it would be more interesting if Barris turned out to not even be a threat. I completely agree. And it was just his paranoia. Yes. Kind of going into overdrive. Yeah, or just leaving it ambiguous about like, yeah. is he psychotic? Is he harmless? Or like, is he just a drug addict? You yeah, know? yeah. I think that would have been much more effective to leave that like just open-ended. Yeah. Um. But yes, this is also where he is told that he is Bob Arctor and he's like, I'm who? <laughs> and he's like thrown off and, yeah. and Hank... Uh, is like, listen, um, we got your report back and you have like two working brain cells left. You're like completely burnt out on substance D. Yeah. And this is where things for Fred slash Bob really begin to spiral out of control. Yeah, I love in the movie, um, the animation for the scramble suit starts to get really freaky. Yes. I wasn't sure if you saw because like we were taking notes constantly and I yeah. barely caught it. But at points like a skull mm-hmm. is inserted into the scramble suit shifting. And like the faces are off now. Yeah. It's really creepy. It, it, such a good use of like that scramble suit effect and like yeah. giving it a vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, but Hank is like, listen, we got to get you detoxed and like get you like some help because we're going to take you to new path, which is like this group of rehab centers that everybody knows they can go to, to, to detox. Um, but yeah, he's, it's kind of like, we don't know if you're going to be able to come back from this. 
Yeah, like you're so far gone. Yeah. We don't totally know what's going to happen, but it's kind of your only shot. Which seems like very rapid to me. Yeah. Like I didn't I didn't know what caused him to go over the edge. It didn't really seem like he ever reached that point. And it didn't also didn't feel like we were seeing his drug use escalate. I also, like maybe just a little bit. I also but, don't know why he was coming down at this point. Yeah. Because he's like coming off it, right? Like yeah. that's why it, it's not he's had too much. It's like he hasn't had enough recently. I don't know. It's kind of confusing. Yeah. Um, as to like what led to this like end of the road for him mm-hmm. um, with his drug use. But Hank is like, listen, uh, I know you're friends with Donna. I'm going to call Donna. This mm-hmm. is in book and movie. Yeah. He's like, let me call Donna, gives a call. And he's like, okay, Donna's going to pick you up and take you to New Path. Yeah. And get you a spot there. Yeah. Or I think originally in the book, it's like she's going to take him home. Yeah. Um, And this is in the book, actually, Donna is driving him there Mm -hmm. and it's revealed after she has an encounter with a police officer that she's actually an undercover fed. Yeah. But like, it's kind of unclear what's going on. Yeah. What her role's been exactly Mm -hmm. and everything that's happened other than she is also undercover. The movie, though. Yeah. Gives us a totally different reveal, Mm -hmm. which is that Hank, his superior that he's been reporting to this whole movie is in fact Donna. Which I loved. So good. It was such a great way to have her be more involved in the story. Even and when also, you didn't know it. Yeah, and also give um, more interest to the character of Hank, which in the book is just kind of like this random person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I guess in the book you could be thinking like, oh, maybe Hank is someone in his life that we don't know yeah. about. I wasn't thinking that, but like that's totally possible. But mm-hmm. yeah, this and, and there's a line too earlier where Hank is explaining like we don't know your identity yeah um you could be uh Luckman you could be Barris or you could Bob. even be Bob you could even be Donna he yeah. says or yeah. Hank says <laughs> so for Hank to be Donna I thought was like great that they planted that possibility yeah at least for uh you know Bob's character but mm-hmm. then the twist of it yeah I thought it was excellent yeah I like this a lot too she takes him to New Path kind of drops him off. We get some really great animated vomit (laughs) when uh, Bob is coming off Uh of the substance D. I I, I liked the uh, animated vomit. You you thought they uh, they textured it just right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just enough uh, substance to it. Uh, Yeah, so he gets gets checked in and um, we get kind of a flash forward here in the story Mm -hmm. after I think what it would be like the majority of the coming down off the drugs. Yeah. So Bob slash Fred (laughs) is now called Bruce. Yeah. And I don't know when he became Bruce. I'm guessing when they admitted admitted him into the facility. Yeah. Did they give him a new name or did Donna come in and say this is Bruce? I think they gave him the name because they took his clothes and his money and they said we'll give you everything back. When you're that's been taken from you. Yeah. So I think that includes like your name. Mm, okay. Um, and I think everyone else is like adamant about not knowing who people are are actually on the inside. So I'm guessing it's like a policy. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but he is really just totally out of it. Mm-hmm. He's kind of just like a ghost almost. Yeah. Um, doing like work in this like drug rehab facility and he's participating but i mean he's just kind of a shell of what he used to be yeah it's really hard to get a sense of what's happening in his mind because he does remember some of the past right he'll talk about his friends he remembers donna specifically yeah but he doesn't 
It doesn't seem like he knows what's really happening. No, yeah. There's even like one really interesting part where like he's there's like a um like a daycare in the facility that I'm guessing is for parents who are there mm-hmm. where they take care of the kids. And he gets yelled at at one point for being in there because yeah. they're like, hey, only the older people get to be in there. Like, that's their job yeah. of taking care of the kids and stuff. And then at a point later, it talks about him vacuuming that room. Yeah. And then he sees this old woman who's named Donna. Uh-huh. And he's like, oh is my, that Donna? Is that Donna? <laughs> and he's like, but I've only been here a week. And you're yeah. like, oh, my God, is he, like, really old now? He's like... <laughs> Has like 40 <laughs> years passed and he's now an old man who still thinks he's oh only been God. there a week. Like, yeah, it, none, that's not, none of that's true, mm-hmm. but it is messing with your idea of like what's, what's happening. happening. Yeah. yeah. So what is the game, Ian? What is it? I could not tell they you. They just yell at you? Yeah. <laughs> and it's so bizarre because like everything about this drug rehab facility up until this point has seemed pretty normal. Standard. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, they're 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 pretty tough, you know, about like, yeah, you know, being working hard and like we don't give you anything for mm-hmm. coming down and like, you know, but it seemed all pretty OK. Yeah. Until the game. <laughs> Where everyone just encircles a person and like screams and yells at them and yeah, like calls, calls them, them names. Yeah, and like tells them that they're worthless <laughs> and like you're like, what's happening? And then yeah. it's just like, anyway, uh next day for lunch, like it just Yeah breezes by it. Well, and then there's another part later where they're going around saying like nice things about each other. Yeah. So I'm like, is this like a either or like you just kind of alternate like build them up, tear them down, build them yeah. up, tear them down. Or do they just flip a coin or just judge <laughs> the vibe of the room? Like, hey, do yeah. we feel like ass kicking today? Like, <laughs> yeah. I um For it being like this very jarring shift of what's going on here. Yeah. I would have liked a little bit of explanation or like exploration of what this is supposed to accomplish. I I definitely agree. And here we meet um, one of the staff members of New Path. His name is Mike. And it seems like he's kind of looking out for Bruce slash Bob slash Fred. Yes. Um, But then we see Mike going out to a burger restaurant. And who does he happen to meet there? But But Donna. Donna. Yeah. And they have this whole conversation where it is revealed that he and Donna have kind of been in cahoots and i don't know where this plan began yeah how much of it was like orchestrated Mm -hmm. but essentially they want to use uh bruce slash bob slash fred yeah who is truly and genuinely like burnt out and brain dead on these (laughs) drugs they want to use him in some way that's not as clear in the book at first yeah but we discover that they think pathway new path new path sorry New Path is actually who is synthesizing Substance D. Yeah. And they want to use Bruce slash Bob slash Fred to uncover the truth. Yeah. And he's apparently been drilled or he's been like subconsciously like trained. Okay. To like somehow activate in this setting. Do they say that in the book? Yeah. Okay. Like they said he's been extensively drilled or like trained. Oh, okay. I think that kind of... went over my head mm-hmm. uh in the movie they're just kind of like yeah we're just kind of hoping he'll like kind of snap out of it and yeah. like actually like know what's going on and help us yeah um but don is like wow this seems like a shit plan for like 
destroying someone's life over or yeah. using them as a sacrifice. And mm-hmm. that's why it's like unclear, like, did Donna intentionally put him onto substance D or like get him to take too much? Well, she was his dealer, right? Yeah. She could have been giving him more than he thought he was even taking. That's possible. You know? And then there's also the this thought that Hank says, which in the movie is also Donna, that maybe Barris was poisoning him. And yeah. I'm like, was that real or not? Like what what caused this downfall for him specifically? Yeah. And like, you know, this whole time Bob thought that he was trying to get to Donna's supplier, but really Donna's supplier was the government. So that she could get him hooked. Yeah. So then he could go to New Path and like infiltrate and try to find out if they're making the drugs. It's pretty crazy. Yes. And and Donna's kind of just like really evaluating her life, which she should. Yeah. After what she's done. And <laughs> yeah. is like, I'm probably done doing this. Yeah. Um, in the book, Mike, for some reason, is just like, oh, my God, Donna is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. <laughs> She's my manic pixie undercover dream girl. <laughs> and like Mike, she's a teenager. She's a teenager, and Mike is a character that we have not known no. at all in this story. And I'm like, why? Why is this a part of this book? Why? It's so unnecessary. Yeah. Please stop ogling a teenage girl. Like yeah. it's so uncomfortable. Ugh. Just let her shoot coke bottles out of the back of a truck in peace, Ian. <laughs> Driving like a maniac on the road with her gun shooting Somehow out the window. this is part of her character that she likes ripping off Coke trucks. They talk about this in the book another time, too. Do that? I Oh, that's right. About how she, like, corners a Coke truck and, like, holds them up and they, like, grab a bunch of Coke bottles. Like, not cocaine. Like, Coca-Cola. soda. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, after this whole thing with Bob, she, like, is driving on the freeway recklessly and then, like, sees a Coke truck and is like i'm gonna go up behind it pulls out her gun and starts like shooting the bottles out of the back of the truck maybe every time she refers to doing coke in the in the book we've just been misunderstanding it yeah she's like i'm sorry i've just had so much coca-cola tonight like it's just i'm I'm out of it please don't listen to what i'm saying that would be really funny (laughs) i wish that i know Otherwise, I don't understand the whole Coke bottle thing. Her obsession with (laughs) Coca-Cola. Bruce slash Bob slash Fred, I am going to keep calling him that, gets transferred out of the main facility to a farm. Yeah. Where it's beautiful there and they think it'll be good for his rehabilitation, like him out in the the open and and working with his hands. Mm -hmm. I mean, at this point, like, he is just so out of it. Like... They're like, oh, there's mountains there, Bruce. You like mountains? And he'll be like, I like mountains. Bruce likes mountains. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, smell that fresh air, Bruce. He's like, I like air. Bruce likes fresh air. (laughs) He's like, we all do, bud. We all love fresh air. Uh, Yeah, they make the comment like a vegetable among the vegetables. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like, Jesus. (laughs) Even Mike at one point offends Donna because he's like, yeah, I'm going to go pick up more vegetables. And she, like, looks at him. He's like, no, like, I'm sorry, literal, like, yeah, actual vegetables. Yeah, I got to get the tomatoes. I have to get tomatoes. <laughs> like, it wasn't a joke. <laughs> um, but this is the reveal. He is led to cornfields mm-hmm. to spray, at least in the film. And he sees that they are growing amidst the corn a blue flower. Yeah. And there's been much more reference to this flower in the film. Mm-hmm. Like, earlier on, like, they kind of know this is the origin of um 
uh, substance D. Yeah, and then one of the doctors ends up suggesting to him that he bring Donna a blue flower. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting, and this is not in the book, as far as I remember. Yeah, I couldn't, because I understood later on thinking back, and like, oh, that flower thing, what was that supposed to be? The point of that? Yeah, like that subconsciously influencing him for later. May oh maybe. That oh he would know to pick the flower. Oh my god. For oh his my god, Donna. Adina. You're like <laughs> tapping into something because we talked about Oh my god, okay. So what was all of his psychiatric testing? Oh, maybe to like see if he was crazy yeah. was conditioning him oh. for when he had his breakdown and was in the field. Maybe. Oh, that would be really interesting. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow, that's really just clicking for me now. Yeah, if that's does, true, I wish there was a little more evidence it, of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's something on a rewatch you might have, like, caught better. I mean, yeah. after discussing it, we got it. But, like, yeah, because I think he even says something like, oh, a blue flower for my blue friend. Or, yeah. Oh, from- <laughs> blue friend. <laughs> a blue flower for my friend. And he, like, pockets the. Yeah. Wow, I think that I think that's it. Like, I don't yeah. think that's even a theory. I think that's actually what was going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, the mention of the blue flower by the doctors, I think, is just in the movie, though. Well, yeah, because I mean, in the book, she talks about getting Donna flowers. Yeah, but I can't remember if it was like blue flowers. Yeah, specifically. I can't yeah. Um, but I like, do think it's implied that he's been conditioned in some way. Well, you know, and and this goes, you know. This shows the power of filmmaking. I remember when she tells him to get the blue flowers. It is a very tight close-up of, of the doctor. Yeah. Centered in the frame and kind of eerie. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that was a weird way to, <laughs> can, like, for her yeah. to deliver that line or for the shot What's to be What's happening framed. there? But it sticks in your brain. Yeah. Like, that specific shot so mm-hmm. that, like, it comes back to you later. But, yeah, it's implied that he's going to bring this flower to... Um, Mike potentially in a few weeks when they have like a, a group celebration and that this is going to be evidence that brings New Path down. Yes. Um, so yeah, like New Path is kind of, has kind of created this system of like yeah. creating this drug that gets people um, like burn out and then they go to the rehab facilities, which then they take them from the rehab facilities to like Plant, the fields to the fields to plant and harvest the yeah. the drug and I also like too how Bob is um like just the shell of a man and yet both New Path and the cops are both using him still yeah like still taking advantage of him I know for their own for furthering their own endeavors yeah and I think that's really interesting I agree and like. I think the idea of New Path, this rehab center, being the ones that are making the drug is kind of interesting, but I don't know if it really makes the most sense because, like, I would expect maybe, like, say in our fucked up society with healthcare, right, at least in America, like, I can see the drug companies, like, making this drug and then people get addicted and then they have to pay to get treatment. But, like, the New Path centers, nobody has to pay for it. Yeah. People just go in. And, like, you get treatment. And, like, I can also see it being, like, the the cops involved in this, right? I, th- I think that's, like, the much more realistic scenario. I mean, yeah. the history of the CIA mm-hmm. and, like... The war on drugs here in America. Yes, and, like, the actual uh, responsibility of mm-hmm. law enforcement for continuing and perpetuating these problems in this system and of like of incarceration yes and then using incarcerated people for, for work slave labor for basically slave labor yeah, yeah. i mean yeah. like there's a lot of real world ties to that cyclical nature mm-hmm. of drug abuse and the war on drugs but 
that ties into more law enforcement and government yeah. than like a rehab facility. Yeah. Like I know rehab is a complicated subject mm-hmm. with a lot of different opinions and ideas about it. Yeah. And it's not always good or handled well. Mm-hmm. But I think being like, they're the real villains yeah. to this is, eh. I think there could have been a better, more interesting resolution here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and we get an afterword, an afterword by the author in both the book and the movie where it's kind of Phil K. Dick talking about like, this was based on my life, based on people I knew and people who got addicted to this drug and ended up suffering these horrible consequences that they didn't really deserve to suffer. Yeah. And he kind of has a list of people that he he knew who died or suffered, you know, brain damage or other damage to their body because of the use of drugs. So I do think it's sort of like an interesting way to end the story here. Yeah, no, I I like his dedication at the end to people that he knew. I do find his, like, comments, though, at the end about, like, drug addiction or drug abuse is a choice. Yeah. And he does say, like, ultimately this story is about people who are punished far too harshly for what they've done. Yeah. But I still think it's, like, he's kind of pulling it back a little bit too much. Like, Mm -hmm. he says, like, this isn't a morality tale or... yeah. I don't know, but he is making a lot of big ideas. He is kind of inserting a lot of big ideas into this book. Yeah. So I don't I don't know how I feel about the forward or the afterward completely. Yeah. So what do you think? What's your take oh, on which I, one is better? Um I know what my answer is. I I could be convinced otherwise. Yeah. But I wanna say the movie. Me too. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty accurate to the book. It is. But we don't have the teenage Donna. We don't have teenage Donna. We don't have the nipple talk. No. (laughs) And there's a lot of more meandering stuff in the book. So much. That is really reduced in the film. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, you still have a lot of these, like, kind of goofy moments. Yeah. But there's a lot of other stuff in the book that's, like, like him visiting that random woman and her husband. And the idea... First of all, that Donna is Hank is yeah. great. Mm-hmm. And also, if it was implied in the book that his um, psychiatric stuff was, yeah, was actually conditioning, like I didn't get that from the book, but I got it from the movie. Yeah. Um. So I think in some ways it was more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think the book kind of I like I liked like the last third of the book, but the first two thirds of it just was so all over the place in tone and in plot. And I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to be getting out of it or what I was reading. And you made the comment like you realized partway through that it was supposed to be funny. And I was like, I could kind of get that. But like for me, it took a really long time to feel like that was what was happening. Yeah, it wasn't. It certainly wasn't like funny throughout. Yeah. And you were ignoring it. It like takes a while for moments to become really absurd and funny. Yeah. And I mean, just like the treatment of female characters was just like not great. And Donna being like a teenager and like the little bits of racism sprinkled in, you know, like I just love that the movie is like, okay, Donna is like a grown woman. Keanu's age. Like we don't have to worry about this. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I thought the book or the the film was very faithful to the book. And like, I feel like a lot of the philosophy of the that the book focuses on Mm -hmm. is just kind of like reiterating and circling around the same themes and ideas. And it's just kind of taking like a really long time to get there. Mm -hmm. So, 
So um, I guess it's a movie. It's it's a movie for both of us. Okay. Well, let's uh, see what our patron Laura thinks of this. So she's talking about the book and kind of capturing the trippiness and the tragicness of it um, and the factors of the movie, too. So she says the ending where he lists his friends and what drug use did to them is so sad and the whole book serves as a cautionary tale. Almost 10 years ago now, I went through a phase where I was using different drugs, but I felt like I was in control of it and I was careful. A friend of mine, though, kind of lost it mentally and just stopped going to classes because this was in college and I and had to go get help. And it was so sad seeing what happened to him. It scared me and was an eye opener as to what can happen. So that's another reason why I like the book, because there are certain aspects I can relate to. Also, the way the rehab is shown, which is a huge reveal at the end, I loved. I think it was cool, yet an upsetting twist. And while I'm not saying that in real life, rehab centers are the ones creating drugs, I have noticed a weird vibe at rehabs. I have never been checked into one, but I've been to multiple when I had a loved one checked in. And while some workers are good people who want you to recover, there is still a weird vibe because it benefits them to have people relapse and need to use their services again. And they all have hands in each other's pockets. They also charge these desperate people an arm and a leg to help them. I know there are rehabs out there that aren't corrupt, but there have been too many that just don't seem genuine and are just out to make money because the rehab business is so lucrative. With the movie, I love the way it's filmed and overall I think it's well cast. Robert Downey Jr. was perfect. (laughs) But I don't think it really conveys the insanity of Bob and I think Charlie Kaufman would probably have been able to make a movie that lived up to the book's trippiness. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, I do really like the book and I think it's a good adaptation, but I do think the book is better overall. So Interesting. Uh, I guess we're slightly disagreeing with you, Laura, but hopefully you still enjoyed this episode. And I, I think <laughs> uh, really interesting you brought up the rehab thing. Yes. And yeah. which is what you were talking about. Yeah, because I have heard that that like, you know, like you said, rehab facilities do benefit from mm-hmm. kind of a cycle of, of drug abuse. And I think how much they're actually trying to help people is yeah. often debated and questioned in mm-hmm. the tactics that they use. So I'm glad that you're able to bring that up, especially from a more personal point of view. Yeah, so, thank you, Laura, yeah. for sharing that. Um, definitely. And also the idea that Charlie Kaufman may have been able to make an interesting story. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like a lot of movies a lot of times other people were thinking about making them at some point so i don't know if charlie kaufman was or not uh i also do agree with her that i do think the book takes you through the insanity of bob yeah more effectively like Mm -hmm. with the german and you're just like whoa and like (laughs) realizing that he's like disassociating from his other self like i i do think the book more effectively guides you through that decline mentally so Thank you for suggesting this book, Laura. Let's do our lightning round. Yes, let's do a lightning. So first up for lightning round, <laughs> some eagle-eyed viewers or people in the know may have noticed a certain person cameo appearance in this film Yeah. of Alex Jones. Yep. The Alex Jones of the radio conservative. Yeah, Sandy Hook denier. Yes. Currently being sued, and I hope that he loses everything because he's a piece of shit. He's a huge asshole piece of shit. Um, Yeah, so I only knew this was him or realized it because he actually also made an appearance in Richard Linklater's other rotoscoped movie, Mm. Waking Life. Okay. Which is more documentary-like in its approach. And, like, they show Alex Jones in that as well. Mm -hmm. And so when he appeared in this, I'm like, oh, my God, it's Alex Jones again. (laughs) Hopefully Richard Linklater has cut ties with him. I, I sure fucking hope so. And I mean, like, I'm sure he was crazy back then, too, but, like... He may have escalated because this was back in 2006. Yeah. So like he may not might not have been quite as bad back then. 
I, I believe he was always this bad. I would. I would. <laughs> but if you're a so. white man, you might not have noticed. That's fair. That's true. <laughs> uh, so next for lightning round, um, we didn't talk about this, but in the book and in the movie. Bob actually had this life before he was a junkie or he was an undercover cop or whatever you want to say about him. He was married and had two kids and then hit his head on the cabinet and then was like, I don't want to be married or a dad anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, geez, it feels so random. There, there, a lot of people don't know there's a special spot on on your head where if you just if you hit press it, it just right, you'll immediately want to abandon everyone. I was that like, you did love. he kill his family? Like, <laughs> yeah, because like he kicked his family out. I or know. They left? Yeah, very suspicious. In the movie, it kind of suggests that maybe he never had a family. Yeah, and it was kind of imaginary, which I would believe more than he just like randomly decided not to have a family. But because this is also based on Philip K. Dick's life. Um, around this time when he went through this junkie phase of his life, uh, his wife left him. Yeah. And he did have two kids. I don't know if they were living with him at the time. Um, so there was this kind of like he was living kind of a quote unquote normal life. And then his family left him. And then he kind of ended up renting out his house to teenagers. So, <laughs> yeah. So there would be some truth to that. Yeah. Um, there's this really funny discussion that they have, one that we didn't talk about, about this man who was this famous imposter impersonator where he like impersonated a nuclear physicist or something like that and like all these other people and like it's in the book and reading the book i'm like is this the guy that catch me if you can is based on (laughs) oh yeah because i'm like it sounds a lot like him yeah and then in the movie they have a similar discussion but they actually reference Catch me if you can. And Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes. And I think they say this man was inspired by that movie. (laughs) Um, But it does raise this really interesting question of like, yeah, he heard about this guy who was impersonating a doctor and a lawyer and all these other people. And he thought, oh, I can impersonate those people, too. And then he thought, why even bother? I'll just tell people that I did that. Yeah. I'll impersonate the impersonator. Yeah. And it's like. Why would you believe someone who said they are that big of a bullshitter? Yeah. Right? Like, why would you take anything they have to say truthfully? I know. Truthfully? Yeah. It's just a very funny, interesting. It's a very funny stoner conversation yes. to be having. <laughs> yes, it is. So this other random thing in the book is at one point, uh, Fred slash, you know, Bob realizes that Barris was kind of like impersonating him on the phone and then kind of retraces the steps to realize that Barris may have used a check of his to pay a locksmith. And he's like, was he trying to get keys to my car or keys to my house? Like, what was he doing? And it's this whole crazy situation where he's like, the check bounced though. And then the guy who the check bounce that was the locksmith is going to like tell everyone about it. And they're going to come and firebomb my house. And yeah. I was like, what? It's like, <laughs> what the fuck is happening here? And so he's like, okay, I have to go. He goes to the locksmith. He's like, here's the money. I'm sorry. Please don't like firebomb my house. And that's kind of the end of that. And I was like, what is happening here? Uh, I know It's like the most mundane <laughs> yeah. weird thing. Like, this feels like it could have been based on a real event in Philip K. Dick's life I or something. Know. And he's like, that one time that I bounced a check and that one guy like came and like pelted my house with rocks. I don't know. I I know. And I'm like, it doesn't translate, though, in the novel to being like that interesting. It's more just like, what's the point of any of this? Yeah. And then he's like, maybe I wrote the check. It's very um, just it does not resolve into anything. Yeah. And it's one of those things that is like built up to seeming like really serious. But when you step back, you're like, what oh, the fuck's that was happening? Nothing. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> That's the end of our lightning round and the end of this episode. Thank you again to Laura, our patron who requested it. If you have an episode that you would love for us to cover, quickest way to do that is to become a patron. And because all our patrons get priority episode requests, they also get monthly schedules. They get bonus episodes. We just put one out on um, T2, the train spotting sequel for all our patrons um, and lots of other cool stuff over there. Yes, we we don't do ads in our regular podcasts to keep the flow going. And Mm -hmm. so supporting us on Patreon is the best way uh, for us to have an income from this. So please consider doing that. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please uh, consider giving us a positive star rating and or review. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Facebook. You can find all those links at CoverToCredits.com. Thank you again for listening to this episode. We (laughs) will see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.